0: I have enjoyed that, yes boy. Me
1: on my I have enjoyed that, yes boy. Me my I have enjoyed that, yes boy. Me my I have enjoyed that. Me o I have enjoyed that, yes boy. Me oh my and thank you very much for tuning in to another episode of In the Sheds on Code with Kingy, where for this interview I'm sitting down with a former silver fern. Blackfern and a current Member of Parliament for the Labour Party in Lewissa Wall. Uh, first off, very, very grateful for your time and um, why don't we just start things off with how are you and what have you been up to as of late?
0: Oh, kia ora Jordan, uh, Tinakoto katoa. Gosh, what have I been up to? Um, trying to do my work to be honest. It's pretty difficult obviously uh, being um, an Auckland-based MP in a COVID environment where Uh, We can't actually travel at the moment to our place of work, which is Parliament in Wellington, um, which means I've been doing a lot of Zoom meetings uh, Mm. and particularly related to uh, conversion practices legislation, also births, deaths, marriages, relationship registration. Well, there's this SOP that was proposed by the Minister Um, and literally spending days hearing submissions from New Zealanders who um, are either in support of ending conversion practices and making the processes better for our trans uh, whānau to change uh, their birth certificate. or hearing from uh, people who who oppose it, essentially. So it's been quite um, an interesting time, quite a challenging time, but also a privileged time, uh, because I have the opportunity as a Member of Parliament to participate in our parliamentary processes to hopefully get good legislation Um, and then other than that been enjoying watching um, the All Blacks (laughs) and um, some of the some of the live sports Um, quite pleased with the Silver Ferns to be honest um, and how they've gone through uh, both playing the Roses and now the Aotearoa men's team I think um, just like last time Knowles is building um, but I'm really confident that we'll have a team that can win the Commonwealth Games um, gold next year.
1: Yeah, I, I I can't say I've watched the last two games in netball, but the Sunday one, I mean, I thought that the girls did really well to, uh, girls, the women did really well to to compete with the athleticism of the men. Um, I don't spend a lot of time watching netball, um, and it seemed pretty evident from the get-go that, you know, there were the physical advantages um, to the men, but the, the way that they stuck at it, and I guess it's just the, the attitude that Nolene um, I think anyone who knows a little bit about netball knows her her pedigree and knows she's she's pretty ruthless when it comes to the training side of things. So yeah, fingers crossed we have a a tip top team come the Commonwealth Games next year. And as I just mentioned off here, I know you just mentioned all the stuff that you're doing with your current role in the political space. And again, I'm I'm no I'm by no means um, anywhere near as competent talking about that stuff as I am, or as I like to think I am with my rugby. But I know that having brushed up a little bit on you and having talked to people who know about the work that you've done in the past and are continuing to do, I know that you're a very busy lady who gets stuff done. So um, fingers crossed for all the stuff that you got on your plate at the moment, it it goes the right way for you. But um, getting more to why I've got you on the show, that's to do with your sporting career, namely your time with the Black Ferns. But what I like to do with my guests is just run through a, a quick couple of warm-up questions, just like you do in a footy game or for a netball game. Get yourself ready to roll, essentially. Um, so I've just got these 10 quick quick-fire questions, and you just answer them um, with whatever comes to mind first. All right.
0: Sounds, sounds good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I promise you're easy. Number one, tea or coffee?
0: Coffee.
1: Apple or Android?
0: <laughs> uh, Apple.
1: Passenger or driver? Driver. Sweet or savory?
0: Oh, if I'm on a sweet.
1: Sauce on the top or on the side? Top. Chocolate in the fridge or cupboard? Fridge. TV show or movie? Movie. Subtitles on or off? Off. Toothpaste then water or water then toothpaste?
0: Toothpaste and water.
1: All right, last one left or right side of the bed
0: oh it changes actually at, at home in auckland on the left um and wellington on the right interesting
1: so do you have a preference on the right is like which way would you prefer To be to honest
0: um both of them well it obviously depends on the orientation of the bed but i'm closest to the door
1: <laughs> okay
0: <laughs> yeah
1: interesting yeah, I'm. Well, I've I've got a single bed at my place, but when I do tend to venture out, I'm oh, I'm, I'm all over the place. Well, I'm a pretty restless sleeper, so you'll find me on either side of the bed if I'm by myself, uh, which is more often than not. But getting more so back to you, um, rugby. Well, well, I know that nipple was a big part of your life as well. But why don't you just take us back to what it was like, you know, growing up where you came from and how you got into sport in general?
0: Gosh, so I was born in the '70s, so I'm definitely aging myself. Uh, but uh, I think a, a quite a typical upbringing at that time, my dad played rugby for uh, college old boys in Taupo, my mum played netball for a club called Rebels um, and I um, love sport, I'm the eldest of four children uh, and got involved in formalised sport uh, from the age of five, playing rugby for my dad's college old boys team. Um, And it was quite interesting because they didn't realize I was a girl when I first started to play. Uh, And when they found out at the end of the season, they actually brought in a rule that girls weren't allowed to play rugby. It was quite interesting. So I was banned as a five-year-old from playing rugby. And I went to play um, soccer. And then I ended up playing netball, like most girls did and got into my first rep netball team when I was in the Form 1 rep team for Topol as an 11-year-old and played netball, rep netball for a couple of years. And then when I was 13, I ended up playing soccer for the Topol women's team and we were playing in a competition. Uh, I ended up, I was playing with one of my teachers actually. So I was quite passionate about all sport, to be honest. And then I started playing netball again when I was 14 and I made the, taupo, the South White Castle under 16s. And then when I was 15, I made the under 18s. And when I was 16, I made the senior team and went to the Nationals in Palmerston North and played all 12 games at the Nationals that year and was selected for the Young Internationals. We were coached by a woman called Lynn Gunson. And at the end of that year, the Silver Ferns were over in England. Um, and Lois Muir, who was the coach announced her retirement and then I ended up getting into the New Zealand national team the following February when I uh, just a week after my 17th birthday so that's me in sport I I pretty much yeah I just lived for it if I'm really honest and school and you know the academic work were secondary and always had been uh, up until Um, I think when I did my master's, I think I realised that it was time to focus my energies on other things. And I had a very supportive supervisor, so Professor Marilyn Waring and I, um, that's where we met, at Massey University, Albany.
1: Wow. I'd I'd brushed up on (laughs) the rugby and the netball, but I didn't realise you were equally as good playing football. But taking it back to you talked about, obviously, only getting to play one year of rugby as a five-year-old, and then yep. having a, a ban essentially brought in. So did that throughout all of, I guess, junior rugby, like was there ever the possibility of playing for another club? And how did your dad even explain it to a five-year-old that...
0: That I wasn't like, allowed yeah. to play rugby anymore. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it wasn't even a rule, but they made it a rule after they discovered that I had played for a season and then they banned all girls. So, in fact, I was an anomaly because most, I guess, parents didn't want their girls to play rugby, but my dad did, and he was very supportive. Um, And so, I guess, from the beginning, I've been a bit of a challenger. My father has obviously supported my ability to do that, but I just, I loved rugby. I mean, I was, you know, very tied to my father being the eldest child, and it was one of his passions. And all I can remember from a very early age is watching rugby with him. And he worked six days a week, um, but he'd be home kind of mid-afternoon on a Saturday and we'd just watch rugby. It's all I remember when I was young is getting home and watching rugby and having bets on the rugby and supporting King Country because that's where Taupo um, is affiliated to, And also Waikato, they were our teams. And we just, yeah, we were, were pretty crazy about and passionate about um our rugby so yeah it's all in the blood um passion that you end up through um not even osmosis it's just part of you know the fabric of of our fano and the fabric of the community that I grew up in
1: yeah it's a real shame that that was done I, I mean like I guess <laughs> like, I, I can only add my input to like what I've experienced in my in my 24 years of living, um, and I, and obviously yeah. I'm aware of like the the attitudes that men, especially back in that era, held towards women and then just girls playing sport, um, or just life in general. But then yeah, even even in the sports yeah. domain. So yeah, it sounds like well, rugby was your first love. You know, I mean, you were equally as talented at netball and and the soccer, like you've mentioned. I mean, like, do you do you ever think back to say like, had you been allowed to play? Like how that would have changed your life potentially. Like would you have even given Netball and soccer a good nudge as well?
0: To be honest, the the infrastructure wouldn't have been there to enable me to progress anywhere. I mean, I was literally playing with boys and there weren't other girls that played. And obviously later we've developed um the opportunity for girls and boys to play together and it be a normal and accepted part of the pathway to elite rugby in New Zealand. But I don't I don't regret um my, my sporting career and actually I missed out of a couple of other sports I mean I played cricket for Northern District so I threw the javelin nearly qualified for the Commonwealth Games in 1990 so to be honest sport was in my blood and I could have played a number of sports but I chose rugby because it is our number one sport and then I chose netball because it is our number one women's sport so very traditional in some ways and didn't fully um, explore like the javelin for example I was like 40 centimeters off qualifying to represent New Zealand at the Commonwealth Games and that was through a season of training um, with a man called John Finch actually who was uh, a coach at the opposite secondary school to mine so I went to Taupo Nui he was the teacher at Tauhara um, and he saw that I had talent and was prepared to train me and over the space of a season, yeah, I think I increased my throwing distance by 16 meters. And then I left Taupo, I went to the Waikato to, to really focus on netball and I, and I didn't take you know, athletics up again. So I think if I have one regret in my life is that I didn't fully explore um, my javelin um, potential, to be honest, which obviously is a bit different um, than playing a team sport all the sports I've traditionally played have been team sports but actually I wish I had have explored that a bit more
1: I mean I wish I would have had the opportunity to choose (laughs) that that, that shows the the contrast between me and you but but yeah well crazy you're like in a nice way you're a freak in terms of like all of your sporting accolades that you've that you clocked up all, all the avenues that you could have gone down. And then, like I said, the work that you're doing now, and you're essentially, you've essentially kicked ass your whole life. doesn't matter where or when, but going more so back to the netball, you mentioned the fact that you played for the Silver Ferns as a 17 year old. Now, was that normal in that era? Uh,
0: in that era? No, there's only been three of us have been 17. The first was Margaret Forsyth, who actually was my idol. Um, and... Still is. It was very sad when Mark passed away um, last year, because she um, has always been somebody who inspired me, actually. And the other person has been Bernice Mene. So, no, it was mm. slightly unusual. And when I got in, I was the youngest in the team. Uh, Julie Townsend uh, was the oldest. So she was 29. So there's a 12 year age difference, but then there were um, others that were in the early 20s, people like April Iremia, um Anna Nu'uval, uh, Robin Dillamore, Tanya Cox, Sharon Burridge, so there were a whole lot of others that were young as well, because Waimarama was in that team at the time, she was the captain, so it was, it was pretty, um, you know, amazing opportunity for me when I think back, because they were legends of the game, and it was very much kind of a team of half legends and half newbies. And we were all trying to forge our way uh, to, to being uh, champions. Um, but it was it was pretty tricky because some of them retired at the end of uh, the first year I'd played. So Sandra Edge retired, Y retired, Rita retired. And we just lost too many good and senior players, you know, very quickly. Um, and, uh, yeah, we we were dominated when I was playing by Australia because I played in the 91 world cup final, for example, that Mm -hmm. Australia won by one goal and then it just got pretty tricky and tough for us after that. And Mm. uh, yeah, it it was, I was never, um, what's the right word. I mean, I always backed myself. I always wanted to play. I didn't feel overawed or that I didn't belong. I was, I was quite um, tenacious in my play. I used to have to play a lot against Rita whate who was the wing attack at that time. And she was really tough to play with because she was so strong, really strong base. We used to have a lot of collisions in the air. Um, so it was quite a physical, quite a rugged game when I was playing. Um, and we played Jamaica. I remember playing Jamaica very early on in my career, and they were very rugged players and... Um, yeah, used to do little tricky things like stand on your foot or hold your skirt. And so you had to be, you had to be really tough to, to kind of um, play against them. Otherwise, you'd find yourself on the, on the floor pretty much quite a bit. And you had to be resilient enough just to get up and, and keep going. But um, yeah, having someone like Y beside you, she used to just push me where she wanted me to go, actually. There were no niceties with Y. If she wanted you <laughs> somewhere, she'd just push you there. Or yell at you.
1: <laughs> I can only imagine. Uh, but yeah, like, like, you just, well, one of my follow-up questions is going to be like how you handled it, still being a teenager playing on a top side. But you mentioned the fact that you've always backed yourself and had that confidence. So you're 17. And then I see that later on in 89, when you made your debut, you go over to Germany for the World Games. So yeah had you been overseas at that point and like what was that experience like like I'm guessing you were still at school like that would have been your
0: last year of school. I was still at school yeah I was in my seventh form I'd never been overseas before and we'd had a build-up in England uh, in Bedfordshire and then we went to Karlsruhe in in Germany and yeah it's a it's funny though people romanticize about what traveling's like but the reality of playing sport is you travel somewhere you arrive at a hotel and we used to go for a walk or do something quite physical early on to try and get ourselves attuned to the to the local time you get up early you, you have breakfast you get in a minivan you go train for a couple of hours you go back to the hotel you have to put your feet up for an hour we used to train three times a day so you train morning you know so it'd usually be on 8.30 to 11, back to the hotel, 1 to 3, and then you train again at the end of the day from, say, 4.30 to 6. So it was pretty full-on days, and we didn't usually go out. You didn't go sightseeing or, you know, it wasn't part of the the program in those days that you did any sort of cultural or, you know, external activities. That wasn't how things were organized. It was very... You know, hotel, training, back, training, back, training, game, travel. And it was quite regimented, actually. And you just had to make sure that you were ready and you were always on time and you weren't late. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, and obviously you got different jobs. So looking after the balls, which I remember early on used to be my job, making sure all the balls were there taking the balls, counting the balls at the end of training, counting the balls again, making sure that they were there and if any of the balls needed pumping up, again, my job. Um, So, yeah, it's good, though. I mean, from my perspective, I think when you are in a team being allocated those responsibilities, you've got your your buy-in. You know, that's your ability to show the team how committed you are to being there and making sure that... um, yeah, whenever and wherever we're playing or training or whatever it is, you're good to go. I mean, there were water bottles, that was the other, the job, which wasn't very cool because you had to clean them and fill them up and make sure they were cold and get them to, you know, to the bus. And if you ever left the the water bottles behind. But I mean, yeah, it it was quite an amazing experience, you're right, for a 17 year old to kind of be thrust into this elite environment and everybody was working, you know. Nobody was paid. Um, mm. We used to get an allowance, and then when I eventually got a job, they reimbursed you. So basically, you took leave without pay, and your employer would write a letter to say that while you were away, this is the amount of money that you would have that you would have received. And they used to just reimburse us. So it wasn't as if we were making anything from it. There were no financial incentives at all. So, pretty much, we all did it for the passion, but obviously the pride uh, in representing the the silver fern and and the black skirt and and, uh, playing for our country.
1: Yeah. And I was just going to follow up on that. I know that, you know, back in the day, I mean, even the All Blacks at that time weren't professionals, but the All Blacks, you know, they would have got like the Mickey of whatever was available to them, you know, sponsorship wise during those days. So, you know, with me not having any idea of what goes on in the netball space, like how well looked after were the Silver Ferns during your playing time?
0: Oh, we we always got um, a pair of shoes and we got a bag and our training gear and our playing gear. But we didn't have a lot of choice, to be honest. Like we didn't get multiple pairs of shoes for different things. But I mean, but it was comfortable. I mean, and actually... The hardest part in some of that, because Adidas came on board and sponsored our shoes, but I'd always worn Essex. And Essex were Essex Tigers, actually. And the reason that I got into the Essex Tigers was because um, when I when I got into the team, my, my parents didn't have a lot of money. And one of my dad, mum and dad's friends, um, a guy called Dave McEwen, actually, he was so proud of me when I got selected. For the young internationals, he rang my parents up and said, I want to help Louisa. So at Sterling Sports in Topol, he gave $500, put $500 basically on a tab, and said, I could go and buy whatever I needed so that I could turn up at the camp and have shoes and have training gear and be able to, I guess, compete against everyone else who'd come from around the country. And so it was very much about the village supporting me and my aspirations and supporting my parents so that I had the best opportunity or made the most of the opportunity um, that that I had been given and um yeah I mean I'm forever grateful for that and I'm, I was grateful for the sponsors but I remember <laughs> I remember really early on with the um Adidas shoes I, I started getting blisters on my the bottom of my feet and so I wasn't yeah, I would have preferred to have worn my my tigers, but anyway, you, you kind of have to adapt and appreciate what you're given. But we didn't have, yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of gear where I could come home and be like Father Christmas and <laughs> hand it around to my younger brothers and my sister. No, it didn't kind of work out like that.
1: Mm, times have, have definitely changed for the better, I guess, in that department. But then yeah, so from eighty nine. And then you finish up playing netball if the internet's correct in ninety two. Yep. Like
0: what?
1: I mean, like I know that you went on to continue your studies. Like I, I see here that you did your masters in ninety three at Waikato University. So in that period, were you studying alongside like pursuing your netball career? And like, what we what were you even doing for work? Like, did you have a pretty flexible yeah. employer? Actually,
0: that's a really good question. So when I was seventeen. Um, got into the silver ferns. Lynn Parker, uh, who was the director of sport at Waikato University, called my dad. And there was a a new course that they were organising. It was a a diploma and a certificate in sport. And um, I got on because I was a silver fern. And at that time, people like Philip Tatarangi was on, Stacey Jones was on the course, uh, Rob Hamill um, Nikki Payne. So there were quite a few rowers who were all training for the Olympics. And then there were a number of us who were um, young, making our way in the sporting world. And so I had the opportunity to combine being away from home, playing netball for the Silver Ferns, and then getting a a qualification. So I did um, this two year um, diploma and certificate and diploma which also included four university papers that I passed. Um, and then after a period of time, I ended up going on to Massey University and doing a, a Bachelor of Social Policy and Social Work. And then I stayed on and did my master's. Um, so, yeah, I ended up studying for about seven years in the end, playing my sport, getting, a, getting degrees or getting qualifications. And it was, yeah, I think the... Combination of sport and tertiary education for me really worked. You know, it was something that I was able to balance quite well. Um, When I uh, was in the Waikato, I did some relief work at a trust called Aka Water Trust, who were part of an organization caring for people who had been in Tokunui Hospital. And so they were transitioning people out of state institutions into their own care. Um, and then when I moved to Auckland and I was studying, I had a cleaning job and I, and I had to clean this training provider uh, twice a week, which usually meant I'd have to get up at like four o'clock, um, either on a Sunday or a Monday morning before they came into the training course. And then I'd have to tr- clean midweek and it would usually take me between four and four and five hours to clean the. So I had to do all the bathrooms and clean all the floors and the kitchen and mop all the surfaces. I mean, it was, and I used to do that by myself. I used to rock up at four o'clock in the morning in the middle of um, Central Auckland off Simon Street. And that's how I survived. And you don't think about that, those types of things. You just do them. And I I kind of think about it now. Gosh, I was pretty vulnerable (laughs) going into these. And it was a two-story building as well. And I'd be there all by myself for like four four hours before people would come, before the the first lot of the tutors and the students would arrive and then do the same. So I'd fit it in around all my practices and obviously my study and, yeah, and just did it because that's what you do, right? When you've got a whole lot of things on, you just do them. You don't think too much about what's on. You just have a schedule for the day and away you go
1: i mean i'm shaking my head at at, you know a four (laughs) or five hour task especially cleaning which i hate to do but just even the idea that an elite athlete was doing that around her chain like you know that's just unheard of now like you you, i guess that's you know that just speaks to the the progression and the development of professional sport um but yeah crazy um and then one of my a follow-up question to you picking up your studies alongside your sport is that you mentioned the fact that school and academics were number two while you were at high school or you know up until you finished high school Mm. so like where did that flip or was was it more so that you were always sort of good at the academia side you just more so love your sport
0: yeah I think that's probably um on point I was I I was good academically, but I preferred sport. I was passionate about sport. And I mean, my dad set up a goal for me out the front of the house and I would be practising at midnight, you know, in the middle of winter. And he'd have to come out and tell me to get to bed. And for me, school schoolwork, I used to... We we lived rurally, so I caught a bus into Topunui Aotea College and I would do all my homework in the mornings or at interval, because I didn't want to have homework after school, because all I wanted to do was play my sport. So that's how I used to manage my time. And I always did that. I used to get it out of the way at school and never do any schoolwork at home. And that just used to be that's how I managed. And I could do it. Like yeah. I, I had the aptitude, but it just wasn't my passion. And and actually I, I think that's why for me now sport and elite sport and tertiary study, because it's actually about how you work and how you prepare and how much time you're prepared to invest in something to be good at it. And anybody can be good at academic study. It's just for a lot of us, it's not our number one passion. But you're right, at some point in my life, it it changed and it did become my passion. and, And I really do think it was after I'd done my undergrad degree at Massey and then chose to go on to do a master's and had supervisors and had to write a thesis. And then you end up being quite focused on research now. I mean, a lot of the work that I do in Parliament, I do my own research. I write my own speeches Um, early on though and I have to um, just acknowledge in my political career that when I first got in and particularly with my marriage equality bill like my wife wrote that bill so Prue who was a lawyer wrote Mm -hmm. the bill for me and she was very very helpful throughout the whole process I had to front the media but she was the one who also did a lot of research and and helped me um, draft my speeches and supported me as much as she could Um, but I'm kind of all on my own now (laughs) if that makes sense and um yeah so I think it stood me in good stead for where I am in my in my career and I've just learned to um to trust myself and my own instincts I think Mm -hmm. that's the other thing you know you have to make instantaneous decisions and once you do you're all in There is no halfway house, especially in sport, and and especially once you, um, once you play sport at an elite level for a very long time, you just learn to make instantaneous decisions with the information that's before you.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, that just says it all. It sounds like you've always had that drive, but it also sounds like you've also had a great support network around you, you know, throughout each of the stages of your career, you know, entering the space that you're in now um but yeah I just had a little chuckle to myself when you talked about getting your homework done early so that way you could crack into your sport because I never did my homework and I wasn't doing (laughs) extras so I don't know what my excuses were but again this is this is an interview about you so um 92 you finish up playing netball like why like why because I mean like you're still relatively young well you still are young so was it that it was too much to handle you know shifting Were you wanting to shift more of your focus to the academics? Like, what happened there?
0: No, no, actually, looking back, I was going through my coming out experience, actually, because I was 21 and I didn't have anyone to talk to. And it was actually incredibly traumatic when I think back now. Um, There was a lot of negative talk in the netball community about lesbians, for example. And Mm. I remember being at the 91 Netball World Cup and there were, there, was, uh, there, were, there were members um, of different national teams that other people thought were obviously lesbian. And just the way they talked about them, um, I internalised it. And I, it's sad to say, but yeah, I felt netball really homophobic. And for a young person who was kind of coming out, it was quite confronting for me. And just one day, I was had a game of netball uh, organised um, with our Waikato team, and I didn't want to go. I just woke up, and I didn't want to go. I ended up turning up to the game late and trying to talk to my coaches at the time, Tracy Fear and Margaret, who was, who was um, coaching then, and I couldn't even tell them. I just said something, you know, and they knew something was wrong, they knew something was wrong and I just couldn't tell them. And um, at the same time, I had an opportunity to play rugby. And what a lot of people don't know is, well, maybe they do, but I'd only been playing rugby for three months um, before I made the Black Ferns. And I found that environment, obviously, there were women who were out and proud. It was a bit more obvious. Um, They were normalised within that rugby context. And I felt like I'd come home, if that makes sense. I ended up in an environment where I could just be who I was and I could play my sport and there was no judgment. So I've started talking about the homophobia netball that I experienced, you know, publicly because I think it's important. Um, And really, that's why I stopped playing netball. Because it wasn't as supportive of of Takatāpui lesbians as, as rugby was. And wow. once I got in the Black Ferns, then that was it, really. I, mean, I, I uh, was really focused on that. And then, obviously, I tried to get back to netball later, um, after we'd won the, the Rugby World Cup and thought I could do both. But um, I kind of was segueing out of sport at that stage anyway and really getting into a political career and also i had you know quite a few injuries in the end Mm. i'm not sure if you've seen through my bio but i um i had meniscus problems when i was younger playing netball uh then i um i snapped my i did my shoulder first i had a shoulder reconstruction snapped my achilles Um, Snapped snapped my ACL and my my knee, and then I re-snapped it and snapped my medial as well. So they were quite major injuries that I had to rehab and then come back from, which I did because I was so passionate about playing. But there came a point, yeah, just before my thirtieth birthday, really, where the opportunities to get involved in politics came along, and and that took six years before I then became a member of Parliament. And really the last 14 years of my life have been about the Labor Party politics and, and obviously being a champion, particularly for LGBT issues, but also for Indigenous rights issues for women. Um, I've got a couple of bills before Parliament at the moment that are focused on, on women um, and making sure that uh, women have access, for, to example, for example, to abortion services without having to be abused. By people who think it's their right to protest their, their choice of a health service. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it has been an interesting career, actually. I should write a book.
1: <laughs> Definitely should. I mean, like, it, you, you might have to finish, uh, wait till you, you finish in politics, whenever that is, because again, like I mentioned, you're still getting work done. But yeah, I gotta admit, that one sort of caught me off guard, and I don't even really know how to follow it up because you know, I will never yeah. understand what it's like to have to go through something like that, especially during a time where, you know, not like today, where not to say things are great, but things are definitely a lot better than what they were 20 years ago. But yeah, the, I mean, I guess that was nice that you were able to then go from being in that uncomfortable state to then shifting to an environment where you were welcomed for who you were, and you could be whatever that, you know, be yourself, not be whoever you wanted to be, be yourself. Um, and in you know in a, you know and what is it quite a short time frame when you think about the grand scheme of things so but like, yeah so you you finish up a netball, like obviously you, you don't like the environment you, you get to the stage where it, like it all just becomes like this this isn't isn't the thing for me so then like how did how did you even get into playing rugby like who invited you along did you go out and <laughs> do your own research like you've always done to get back into playing and like that must have been a weird no. feeling
0: ah uh. No, well, actually, the, so the year I made um, the Black Ferns, I uh, was playing netball. So I was still playing netball. So even though I kind of missed that um, that Waikato game, I was playing netball for vedettes and in the, in the club competition. And a woman who, um, actually at that time, she was dating Gavin Hill, who used to play for the Warriors. Um, and her name was Helen. Helen Mann, and she was a police officer and she had played rugby down in Canterbury uh, and she was playing center for uh, and basically she just said to me, you should play rugby, like just straight up. And she said, come to a training and just play. And so I went to a training um, on a Wednesday night and the team had a game on the, on the Sunday and I went along to the game, and this is quite a high case story actually, because after the game, I rang my dad and said that he owed me a dollar fifty, um, because when I was five and I used to play, he used to give me fifty cents a try. And so, my debut club game for Varsity, I scored three tries, and um, <laughs> yeah, and there, and there was a black fern uh, in our team, Nina, uh, her and her husband John own the Eastside Tavern. And she just was like, right, you're coming back. You're in our team. And and I just started playing, basically, and it felt amazing. Because rugby, you know, when you play netball, netball is really restrictive. And obviously, it's restrictive because of the positions you play and where you're allowed on court and what you're allowed to do. And there's specific roles. Whereas in rugby, you've got the whole field and anyone can score. And you can get involved in... Every aspect, other than the set pieces, but every aspect of rugby, you're there 100%. And I just love the freedom that rugby offered at the time. And so that's how it all happened. And literally, seriously, I got um, selected to trial. I don't, I can't, I'm just thinking back, had I even played a game? I had played for Waikato, I was in the Waikato squad and got in in the Blackbirds. So... And then I kind of thought right well that's me now I'm just going to play rugby but um, for a period I played both I was in the Waikato netball team and I was in the Waikato rugby team and then and then to be honest that was really the beginning of you know coming out because you end up in an environment where there were there were women you know lesbians who were as I said before out and proud and living their lives and then you think oh okay well that's me that's who I am and now I I have an opportunity to fully be who I am and I and I do and I and actually that's probably why when I think about a lot of my work uh, in parliament and still today is about how young people process that coming out Mm. and I think it's becoming easier because it's a lot more visible but, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, because, it, you know, we only had homosexual law reform 35 years ago in 1986. So most people have grown up thinking something was wrong with homosexuals and homosexuality. And that kind of the residual concept or effects of that type of philosophy still pervade our society today. And still young people I worry about when they come out and how they're received, and um, and and actually we have to make sure that they're received in a positive way, that they're affirmed and that they're supported to be who they are, because we know now that young people who aren't uh, nurtured and loved and affirmed end up, you know, self-hatred, hmm. internalised homophobia, which leads to depression and suicide and risk taking behaviour and a whole lot of other negative consequences and really it's intolerable today you know 35 years after we realized that homosexuals were normal human beings so yeah that was And my in and, and my friend during all of that coming out was a book that I got in the library true story I didn't have anyone to talk to so I went to the library and did some research and found out that it was a normal natural expression of being a a human being and understood who I actually was and then I ended up meeting people and yes predominantly through my work at the time but also rugby which meant that I could just be myself and not have to worry about anyone judging me other than for how I played the game of rugby which is Mm -hmm. what I think what anybody wants to be judged on whether it be at work or in the church or wherever they just want to be judged on how they how they behave how they act toward um, fulfilling the objectives of whatever organization that they belong to
1: absolutely and if and if you don't mind me prying like in terms of you coming out like did you never think to go to your whanau or did you even think that they perhaps might have been a little offside with it with coming from that generation and like was it really like the rugby group that then pressed you to like just express and tell everyone who you really are or
0: yeah that's a really good question because it was through rugby that I ended up finding a girlfriend and then we we hadn't been together it was about six months before I came home and told my parents and to their credit and I'm incredibly lucky my father particularly he was really philosophical and <laughs> He he said there's a lot of them in society these days, um, but he was really worried that I was picking a life that um, would would mean I would be discriminated against, and so he was really worried for me. And I said, Dad, I'm not picking it. I'm this is who I am, you know, and I'm proud of who I am. And he just said he loved me, and he just wanted to make sure I I was happy and that I. Yeah. And that I was going to be able to live a life, a full life. But once I came out, then that was it. And I didn't really care what anyone else thought, to be honest, because you can't live your life worried about what other people think about you. You know, nobody can survive like that. And also, I think sport probably is the, is the um, purest most honest domain that you could ever be involved in because you get caught out in sport if you don't put in the work. There's no shortcuts. You know, and you have to be honest with yourself and you have to be honest with the people that you're, you're playing with because you can't, yeah, you, you get caught out otherwise. And so I've always preferred to live my life pretty openly and honestly and transparently, just like I, I played my rugby, really. Didn't try to hide what I wanted to do. You just had to stop me. <laughs>
1: that attitude definitely served you well um especially for the rugby teams that you were a part of but before we get into you kicking on with your black ferns career after only playing rugby for three months i mean like what the heck you mentioned well you talked about being an anomaly being a teenager and representing the silver ferns so were you the first ever cross-code netballer that played for the black ferns or could you is there anyone prior to you or even from the time that you did it that could even equate to that or could even compare to what you did
0: uh netball rugby probably not at that not at the elite level not representing new zealand but I, i mean people like like portia played netball she was playing netball for the mystics but i think in terms of you know actually playing for the silver ferns and actually playing for the for the black ferns um be pretty difficult these days actually to have someone who did both. And there was a little period where I played both codes in, in a winter. Um, you just couldn't do it anymore because of the professionalization of the sport and mm. there's just no opportunity. You could do a a, a Jeff Wilson and, and still play cricket, probably if you wanted to play, you know, and I only made it to Northern district, so I didn't make the national team in cricket. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think Touch, there's been a few people who've played Touch for, for New Zealand. Actually, Vanessa Coates, who I played with in the Black Ferns, she's an amazing, amazing rugby player, but she was a legend in the Touch you know, sector, amazing woman. Um, but a lot of dual internationals, actually. I mean, Jenny May came through playing Touch and netball for Waikato as well. So I played with, with Jay May. Um, she's a bit younger than me. And she obviously has gone on to do other things and and, uh, representing us, very proud of her. So yeah, it's been a a blessed career and having people that I played with um, like Waimarama, like um, Farah, like Mel Robinson. You know, when I think about our cohort, uh, we've certainly contributed and we continue to contribute to New Zealand society. And I actually think highlight the value of sport uh, for women because it's through sport. I think all of us have been able to um, really learn a whole lot of values um, and practices that we've taken into other domains in our lives once we've retired.
1: Yeah, I mean, like you see the work that Jenny may has been doing with the tele- stuff like I remember her first on, I think it was Code or Maori television. I used to watch that religiously yeah. with my old man yeah Mel yeah. when she was doing the rugby commentary stuff yeah. um but again I'm going back to the to the the cross internationals I mean like the only other person that I could think of off the top of my head was Susie Bates who played basketball and cricket
0: oh yeah, but, yeah. and obviously honey honey hit me yeah because she's played both rugby and and rugby league
1: yeah
0: yeah and she's pretty phenomenal yeah and I mean there's a lot, I mean I think there's a lot of us um and Māori woman who just as I said before, we love sport, passionate about sport, and then we just take that passion into other areas of our lives and in other things that we engage ourselves in and involve ourselves in, um, and so my, my desire really is to make sure that all uh, women and girls have the opportunities that I did and can participate to, you know, the same degree that I did, because I I think I, well, I know actually I wouldn't be where I am in life if it wasn't for my ability to play sport and my participation in sport. Mm,
1: That's cool. I'm not sure they'll ever live up to your success, but, um, yeah, I guess as long as they have the, as long as they have the opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's the main thing. Um, but again, sorry, I love going off on these tangents, but, um, I, I know again, mindful of time. I need, I need to get this out because you're a busy lady. Um, but, 94, you were you with the Black Ferns after three months of playing rugby, and you go or you're a part of the first official tour of Australia in that time, mm-hmm. and your first game is actually against the ACT, what what was like yeah. the, the the Canberra territory team, but your test doesn't come until the next game against Australia. Um, so how did how did that first trip away or that first experience going away with the Black Ferns compared to what you'd already done in your netball career? Like did you enjoy it more because of like you'd come out like you'd gone through that process or like can you even compare it
0: Uh i i th- they were both special i mean i don't think um i would say one was better than the other obviously i did one before the other but you know any opportunity you have to represent your country is a is a privilege uh and obviously a- actually all you want to do is to play can i be honest like so when I first got in the netball team, I was on the bench. Whereas when I got into the rugby team, I helped set the standard and I played. And I played right from the beginning and I was number 11 and I was part of the, you know, the game plan around how we would play the ball. I, I mean, I, I used to do all the the, the scud running, you know, they the ball would get kicked off and they'd pass it to me. My job was always to get us forward momentum. So, you know, in terms of um, did I enjoy it more? Um, yeah, I probably did enjoy the rugby more because I was um, I I was built into the game plan, which was all about momentum and, and making sure that we crossed the advantage line. And, and my job was just to make sure that I executed well. So if they kicked to me, you know, and it was one of those things. Actually, the yeah, it was quite interesting. There were some times in netball at the 91 World Cup where I know, you know, people were afraid of other teams, but I've never been afraid of other teams or other players. And if the ball was in the air, I always wanted to catch it. And I always wanted to be the one that took it up. And I was always wanting to, you know, I think, yeah, it's true. Sport is like 99% mental. Because you, you can talk yourself out of things, but you can also so talk yourself into things. And what I've known and experienced in my lifetime is that if you put your mind to something, then the only person that'll stop you from achieving whatever you want to achieve is yourself. So it's all up to you at the end of the day and how much you're prepared to work for what you want. And there are no, you know, we, we don't make sacrifices. We make choices in sport and we make choices in life. And yes, there's opportunity costs, but they're opportunity costs. And you just move on and focus on what you need to do to get to where you want to be, if you want to be the best. And that's just the way it has to be. And um, yeah, it is all about priority and why you put what you put first, which is trainings, preparation. I mean, I miss lots of family gatherings and events, but the I knew what I was doing and it was worth it because what I was trying to do was to be the best I could be and get into teams and obviously for us to win and, and be world champions or, you know, win championships. Um, yeah, and it's pretty scary. There was a period there where I didn't lose in any of the jerseys I played. When I, when I played for College Rifles, for Auckland, and then for the Black Ferns, we never, never lost in the jersey for like seven years. And that's quite a satisfying feeling.
1: Absolutely, because you play to win. I don't, I yeah, anybody, always. Yeah. Yep. I don't think anybody will, will ever be able to do that besides maybe the players that played in your time in the same teams that you did. Um, and I know that 98 was sort of the, the icing on the cake for you, like from, from a rugby perspective, but 94, the same year that you debuted, why didn't New Zealand send a team to the World Cup in Scotland? Was that to do with funding or?
0: Oh, I think um, it would have had something to do with funding. It would have also had something to do with New Zealand uh, taking over women's rugby, because up until the point that I was involved, um, it was a separate association or separate Mm -hmm. organisation. And the reason that New Zealand rugby ended up taking over women's rugby was the international rugby board had an aspiration to go to the olympics and they realized the only way they could get into the olympics was if both men and women could play the sport and that's what drove them was the aspiration to make rugby an olympic sport and the only way in because the olympics are based on equity was to make sure that women played as well and then that ended up being expressed as sevens rugby which is interesting again and that's really when New Zealand rugby put an umbrella around women's rugby, but it was a very limited umbrella. You know, I don't, I don't think right at the beginning they had this big strategic vision of where women's rugby was going to go. Yeah. And we've just got where we've got, actually, because the women have been so awesome <laughs> and passionate and, and we're capable and we've shown that and we've won in spite of the lack of investment but all we ever wanted when I was playing was an opportunity to play. And now other things have come from that. And we have women who can build you know, careers on the fact that they are professional athletes playing rugby today, which, you know, I'm that's amazing. And you know, I salute, you know, the the Sarah Hiddenys of the world and the Kendra Cox Edges and the Portia Woodmans, and you know, there's lots that have built the game. And and actually, Farah, it starts with her, really, 4 time you know, World Cup uh, winning captain, Rochelle Martin, Anna Richards. I mean, these legends who, Cheryl Waka, um, you know, who who played and contributed and, and are still involved in the game. So, you know, I really have to acknowledge their leadership and where we are today.
1: How satisfying is that as a former Black Fern and seeing the way that the the Black Ferns have been acknowledged now or as of late for for all the successes that they've had because you only have to go back and look through all the statistics to see how dominant the team has been um, since it's you know sent teams to all these international events I mean how does that compare to like when you actually won with the team like during those days because I mean like at that time I guess that like you said you all you wanted was an opportunity to play but surely like in your mind seeing the way that the men's game was going at that time. Cause that was, you know, well 94 or the next two years, the game turned professional, but you know, that was obviously yeah. would have been the talks for a while. So like looking at like the development that's undergone now and there's still work to be done, but are you, are you proud of how, how things have, have changed?
0: Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I am really proud. And I found I have contributed to, um, I guess, uh, the appreciation of women playing rugby. I mean, when we won that first um, official Rugby Women's World Cup, we um, went away with pretty little fanfare. I don't even think people knew we were going. And there were write-ups in the UK, actually, that said we were this amazing, magnificent team. Um, and then Holmes, I'm not sure if you remember Paul Holmes, but his show was on at the time. It was, you know, primetime television and He had interviewed the girls, and um, we really captured the imagination of the public. And we came home, and we had a reception at Parliament when Jenny Shipley was the Prime Minister, and she was really proud of us. So, yeah, I think we've taken every opportunity that we've had to highlight the fact that rugby is a game for all, and actually women and New Zealand women play rugby incredibly well. And the fact now that we have a super competition starting next year, obviously we have um, professional 15s players, professional 7s players. Um, We've won at the Olympic Games. We've won, gosh, what is it, seven World Cups. You know, am I proud to have been part of that legacy and helping create opportunities for women and girls in the future? Absolutely. Yeah, and that's really what it's all about, which is why you see – You know, people like Farah putting her hand up um, and being a representative on the rugby board. Um, I've just recently um, become involved in Women in Rugby Aotearoa um, and I'm co-captain of the uh, Boards and Committees team with Rowena Davenport, who's the chair of the Taga Rugby. So I'm trying to give back as much as I can.
1: All right, whānau, so what happened after that last answer was that Louisa informed me that she had to pop out for another meeting. What had happened is that she didn't envision herself talking to me for so long um that's me for not asking for enough time Uh, but she was nice enough to come back and finish off the interview so where we jumped to was just when i hit record again um and pick up where we left off so i'm I'm, i should i should honestly like put longer try to (laughs) compress it down but like i said i go off on all these tangents to where like i feel like all the all the good bits are when i do these podcasts um but we we wrapped up there just talking about obviously like the the opportunities that women you know, like what that's meant for you and and the progression of that. Uh, So all in all in your career, thanks to the the bio that Adam Julian, who I think talked to you (laughs) in putting this together, he's actually a a close friend of mine. Um, He's written down Uh, that you've scored 48 tries in 32 first-class games. Like you mentioned, you never lost a first-class game or in in that seven-year period. Uh, You were the Auckland Player of the Year in 1995 and you were the New Zealand Player of the Year in 1997 you won the world cup in 1998 you were also a part of the first hong kong sevens for women part of the the new zealand wild ducks team that won it in 1997 yeah on top of like all the stuff that you did at the netball space on top of all the what could have been in terms of with the javelin the soccer, the cricket and like we mentioned right at the top of the podcast you've moved into the political space but Looking ahead to, you know, say next year when, or what what should have been this year with us hosting the Rugby World Cup, but that's obviously been postponed yeah. to next year in the midst of COVID. As someone who's been there, done that, and is still very closely tied to the game and women's sport in general, how important is next year's competition going to be for the future generation or the next generation of Black Ferns?
0: I actually think there's a lot of pressure on the girls next year because we are hosting at home and obviously our expectations are high. Um, But I I actually think the future of the sport is already in hand, to be honest. We've had um, year on year increases of of women and girls playing rugby. Women now comprise 20% of all rugby players in New Zealand. Um, I think that um, it's not just about the 15s game anymore. It is about sevens. And I think our sevens women were, were just phenomenal uh, at the Olympics. I think they're, the way they played, but also the way they engaged. And the way that we are, like very, yeah, we, we're really culturally competent. Like we know how to acknowledge the tangata whenua, those who are hosting us. We know how to be humble, even though Ruby said it a lot. You know, she, she actually meant it from the heart. It is about being humble and not... Um, not thinking that you're above the game or that you're above anyone else like you genuinely are grateful when you prepare and you don't take anything for granted do you know what i mean i um i mean i think the way that our women play all of us it doesn't matter if you like rugby or not should be incredibly proud of the way that we hold ourselves and the way that we represent our country And the other person, I mean, there's a lot of athletes, but the only other person who really embodies that for me is Lisa Carrington. You know, she's just a masterclass. Mm. She Just the way she does everything she does, it's incredibly methodical, but she's always kind of striving for more. And and Sarah Hidany really came to the fore. I thought her leadership, and obviously um, not a lot of people would have known about um, what happened with her mum, you know, and how um, inspiring that was for her to make sure that she did everything that she could to honour her mum and to create a legacy for her whanau, which she's done. You know, and I I just think all of that means the game is in in good hands. So it doesn't really matter what happens next year. Obviously, I I want us to win, though I believe we can win. Yes, I do. But the sport is so incredibly competitive. I mean, look, France obviously Mm -hmm. beat us. You know, when we played them last year, I think the... um, the tournament that they're now going over to play is going to be um, really interesting. So we've got games against England. Um, it's a shame we didn't get to play Australia. Um, we were going to, obviously, and then that couldn't happen because of COVID. So we, we, we're we going to get a measure of where we're at internationally very shortly. And then we haven't got much prep time, although I'm, I'm not sure if they announced, is it November next year when the the World Cup will take place. Yeah, I think it's so We're literally, for that time yeah, frame, yeah. Yeah, so maybe when they come back from this tour, they've still got a bit of time. But really, this is, you know, hard, hard yards, hard graft, hard prep, which is all about putting in the hours, getting fit, you know. And if you want to look at a template for winning um, an international competition in a very short space and time, we should look at what Dame Nolene Todua did with the Silver Ferns mm. when they went over um, and, and went to Liverpool and, and won because she didn't have long, but she had very clear standards. And if you weren't fit enough, she didn't even look at you. And and you can't. And that's how Gordon Titchens used to roll too. When he was our sevens coach, you had to be fit enough to execute um, when you were tired. And that's at the end of the day what it's all about: who can execute under pressure and under stress when you most need them to you know to convert those opportunities so yeah so we're in for an interesting time and like everybody I just hope we're in a position to be able to to host and to have people there who can enjoy the rugby but regardless obviously because of technology we'll be able to see those games but I'm hoping to be at them if not all of them as many as possible (laughs) <laughs> sorry to
1: almost almost cut you off before i was just going to say i do not envy being one of those players if they are going to put them through the ringer like Nolene has so yeah like full steam ahead to next year where like you said hopefully someone like you and, and me can can go along and, and, and champion our, our now um, but before i let you go um, I, I just want my closing question for you and i guess it sort of ties into the last one is you know the game has changed a lot since you retired and it's for the better for the most part but like we've like I mentioned there's still a lot of work to be done and I know that you're still heavily involved in the space so as someone who's again been through it um is still tied to it what what needs to be done or what like what is in the works or what would you like to see be done to take that next step even further in the right direction when it comes to women's rugby
0: yeah it's probably just full integration of of girls and into the system and make it as easy as possible for us to play through the age groups um, and then progress on either through our high schools uh, or through clubs. So we really need um, the infrastructure of rugby to be represented, representative of and be represented by women. Um, and with our, our Women in Rugby Aotearoa um, aspiration. We support what um, New Zealand rugby has recently come out as an aspiration of 50% diversity uh, on all the boards, you know, that's super boards, PUs, clubs, and with a minimum of 33% women. I mean, we support that aspiration. And we think that um, through women being involved in all levels of the sport, as obviously governors, administrators, and then coaches and obviously inc- continuing to increase the player base then we will be able to add value to rugby and make it sustainable and to ensure that you know New Zealand will always have a presence in rugby because it's getting quite competitive as you know and obviously players um, within the, the men's game are being enticed uh, by clubs to go and play in other competitions which are not about country versus country, but more about club versus club. And there's a lot of money involved in rugby um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, in the Northern hemisphere and even in Japan. But I think it's been quite good that um, New Zealand rugby has identified the ability of our players to go off and have sabbaticals, for example, and be able to, um, I, I think, to experience something different from the sport, with the view that they come back and be able to represent us um, at the World Cups. I I do wish that uh, in terms of the sevens and I'm not being disrespectful to our sevens players, but that more of our players were able to play. Like I've always wanted to see Bowdoin Barrett and even Geordie Barrett now, you know, Mm. play, play sevens. And of course the Adi was really close to saying he wanted to be available for Olympics and I just wish that we could provide an opportunity and and maybe that's a form of sabbatical that that New Zealand rugby and coaches and players need to think about why do you have to go off and have a sabbatical in Japan, why don't you have a sabbatical and that sabbatical is in the same year as the you know as the the Olympics and let's send you know our best players Mm -hmm. that's what I'd like to see because we do that in, in, for the women. I mean, look at how many of them have crossed over. True. Obviously, Portia and um, uh, who else is playing who was in the Sevens team? Not Tyler, although I think she should be there. Um, Maybe Teresa? she will. Yeah, is it Teresa Fitzpatrick? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Portia's a bit of a freak. And I think she <laughs> was pretty clear from the beginning she was going to do both, wasn't she? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah oh Kelly and Kelly Kelly Brazier Yes, one yeah Yeah, so um, yeah I mean and these are legends of rugby you know you have young boys to look up to our women's players because they just see them as rugby players and actually that's what we want so there's lots more that can happen in rugby and I have an opportunity um, through my membership of Women in Rugby Aotearoa um, to contribute um, as an ex-player and someone who's still incredibly passionate about the game, to helping build, I guess, a fit-for-purpose organisation for the future. Mm. And, and and we will have challenges um, in that space for all peoples, you know, not just having boys and girls teams, but also how we enable trans athletes, for example, to play our sport, you know. And I and I think that we can resolve those issues i think we're mature enough to have those conversations and and find ways for people to pay as opposed to coming out with policies that exclude just because they don't think it's right or fair i think that we will find a pathway forward that's fair and just and upholds people's you know manner which is what um, why i'm so proud to yeah to have played for both the silver Ferns and the black Ferns. In
1: my, in my time. I was going to say, well, if, if if your work going forward is anything like your track record, uh, <laughs> it's in good hands. But yeah, that's a wrap on all that I wanted to cover uh, for your career, Louisa. Um, like I mentioned at the top of the podcast, I'm very, very grateful to, um, well, grateful for anyone that, that jumps on their podcast and shares their story with me, um, but more so for a wahine like you, who I know is... Trying to find time to help out anyone and everyone, and so yeah, very grateful.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for the invitation. It was my pleasure. So kia kaha.
1: Kia ora, kaha. I'll Catch you later.